out your Bibles. And as you pull out your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5, 2 Kings chapter 5, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, in the back of that pew, it's page 311. Uh, let me say something super quick to piggyback on what Pastor Kyle just said, and particularly for anybody watching this online, we are doing this uh, initiative called Take the Journey. I, I don't... Uh, I have to be careful with this because I know I'm going to get accused of this by a couple people probably. I don't know of anything more important than what we are asking you to join us to do. We have to get the word of God in us so that it dwells in us richly. It will transform your life. You will be more patient. You will be more merciful. You will be more kind. You will be more loving. You will be wiser you will be more mature spiritually. It will impact your job, your school, your friends, your families, your neighborhoods. This is the power of God's word. And I am really asking that every single one of you join us on this and stay with us. We're going to be sending you out daily an email early in the morning that you can get when you wake up to remind you of that day's readings. We're going to do this together for those of you who are on Facebook. There will be a private Facebook page called Take the Journey where we encourage each other. We will have opportunities uh, over the year to give testimony, for you to give testimony of what God's doing in your life through his word. It's five days a week, leaving you two days to do catch-up. It's really not that difficult. And it approaches the Old Testament chronologically, something that almost none of our Bibles do, and it's going to show you a whole new understanding of the timeline of events in the Old Testament. It's going to be mind-blowing when you see when things actually occurred. Can I encourage you? It starts December 31st. Take the journey with us. And if all of that's not encouraging you enough, you're going to get a free mug. You're going to get a free mug. Except for those of you online, you actually have to come to church to pick it up. So that's a win-win. That's a you get back to church, and everybody else gets a free mug. So I want to really encourage you to join us on this. And really, here's something that you might want to know, and something that you would probably learn when you read through the Bible in a year chronologically. Did you know that the books of First and Second Kings were written to encourage the thousands of Jews who were slaves in Babylon. Babylon, the most powerful nation in the world, conquered Judah, of which the city of Jerusalem and uh, the temple of God were part of. They completely reduced the city to rubble. They burned down the temple of God. They took the absolute best of the best and forced them all the way up into Babylon, modern-day Iraq, to serve as their slaves in their fields and in their furnaces because they were a brick-making superpower. The only ones left behind in Jerusalem three times, the Bible says, were the poorest of the poor. And the only reason they were left behind is to work the fields for the king's tax. So all of these people in Babylon, they're so discouraged, they're so demoralized, their faith is flickering like a candle about to go out. 
And they're wondering, how could our God be powerful, the most powerful of all gods, and good? Why would this happen to us if he was omniscient, omnipotent, and all good? And their faith was beginning to fail. They could not even sing, the psalmist says. They took their harps, and they hung them in the branches of the poplar tree because they couldn't even get their souls to sing worship. You ever been that depressed where you couldn't sing? If so, you understand the collective depression of the people of God in Babylon. First and second Kings was written for them to show them you're in Babylon, number one, because you would not stay faithful to your God. And he appealed to you time after time after time. This is his discipline. But he has not given up on you. He will restore you. And every, listen, this is critically important. Every miracle that we've been studying in this finding Christmas in unexpected places, every miracle was a big neon sign to the people in Babylon, God's people. Do you see God hasn't given up? God is powerful. He's the most powerful of all gods. And look at his goodness. It's being displayed to a widow, to the people of Jericho. It's being displayed to a foreigner that we're about to see today. With that, let me remind you what I told you three weeks ago. Try to remember this. This is not hard to remember, but it's incredibly important. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So the New Testament's hiding in the pages of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament's come out on center stage in all the pages of the New Testament. Let me make that a little bit more clear. On every page of the Bible, Jesus exists. I'm not exaggerating. Every page of the Bible, the water that issues out of the rock, the manna that came to Israel every day, the freeing from their slavery in Egypt, their, the, the dividing of the Red Sea, over and over and over, all of it points to the gospel. And the gospel is super simple. It is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we are about to watch that unfold today in the most unlikely place to a man who does not even belong to Israel. In fact, to a man who is a, an, an enemy of Israel. We're going to find Christmas in an unexpected place. Can I encourage you to stand with me? Let's read together 2 Kings. We'll start at chapter 5, verse 1. And I'm going to read it a pretty good clip because there's a lot to read. So follow along with me if you would, and I'll keep you in pace with me. Naaman... Commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Look at verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. 
And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. All right, you may be seated. We're going to see three things, and we're going to find Christmas in this. We're going to see the problem, we're going to see the miracle, and then we're going to see the gospel. North of Israel, let me give you a little geographical insight. North of Israel was a nation called Syria. Your Bibles might actually call it Aram. It's the same. It goes by two different names. And they occupy a territory that God had centuries before given to Abraham. So when David came onto the throne... He began to reclaim all of the promised land, and it touched off repeated cycles of conflict, not unlike what's happening even right now in the Middle East today. It's the same problem. This has been going on for millennium. God gave Israel this land. Other nations say, no, we want it because it's prime land. It's prime real estate. And, and here, Israel was fighting to reclaim it. We've got Naaman, who's not a commander of the army of Israel. No, he's a commander in the enemy army of Syria. He was a great man with his master, verse 1, and in high favor. In other words, the king loved him, the people loved him. Because by him, the Lord, Yahweh, had given victory to Syria. This is crazy. He gave, God gave victory to Naaman, who's leading the armies against his people. Strange, right? But the rest of verse 1 tells us that victory is not the only thing God had given to Naaman. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So he's got victory. He's got the love of the people, the respect of the king. He's the number two person in the power called Syria, but he is a leper. Now, let's be pretty precise in this because leprosy in the Bible actually can range from, for, to, to, um, to include several things. One, it could be a skin infection. All of us probably have had skin infections. The Bible called even that leprosy. It could be more advanced psoriasis. It could be ringworm. It could be what's called today MRSA, or it could be full-blown leprosy, which they call today Hansen's disease. Now, I know what some of you are going to do. You're going to get up in a few minutes and go down to the bathroom and start looking in the mirror at a spot that you found a few days ago. It's not leprosy. But did you know that leprosy still exists today? In fact, there's a leper colony in Hawaii. 
So if you have Christmas plans to go to Hawaii, I would cancel them if I were you. Give those plans to one of the pastors of this church. <laughs> Lepers were common throughout the entire world in this period of history. It's a bacteria. Leprosy is a bacteria, and it's been found in Egyptian mummies. So archaeologists and experts believe the leprosy started in Egypt. It's contagious. It spreads through the air. You could get leprosy through body contact. You could get leprosy through touching the clothes that carry the bacteria. It starts with a white, pinkish patch of skin, typically on the nose or the ears, the forehead or the face. Why? Because the capillaries lie really close to the skin all around our heads. And as it spreads, eyebrows, eyelashes begin to disappear. Spongy tumors grow around the face, and then they begin to spread around the entire body. As it progresses, it attacks the larynx, through which we speak, it produces a harsh, grating voice. So lepers really had a terrible, frightening voice. And then it progresses into the bone marrow, and it prevents the blood supply so that fingers and your nose and your ears begin to be reabsorbed back into your body. The blood can't get to them. It causes blindness eventually. Your teeth will fall out, but it gets worse. Here's where... Bacterial leprosy finds its worst part. It actually destroys the sheath that goes around our nerve fibers. And what happens in leprosy is that if you grab something hot, normally it sends lightning fast a signal to your brain and an automatic response of letting it go and moving away. To a leper, there's no pain signals transmitting. They grab something hot. There's known stories of a leopard dropping a potato in a campfire without thinking because he doesn't feel pain. He reaches in and he grabs this smoldering hot potato, burns his skin, but he never knows about it, and it could get infected if it's not tended to. In fact, in leper colonies today, they check each other's bodies every night before they go to bed for any cut, any abrasion that could lead to an infection. Because if that cut goes unnoticed, it becomes infected, it can spread to gangrene and eventual amputation. In fact, in the ancient days, you would smell a leper coming before you could identify the person as a leper because of their rotting flesh. It was a death sentence. It had no cure. There is no historical event of a leper being healed before this passage in the Bible. And it struck terror around the entire ancient world. In fact, Pharisees, who were Jewish pastors, had a rule on their rule book that if a leper is coming towards them and the wind is blowing from them to you, they cannot come within 150 feet of you. And if they're coming upwind, or rather the other direction, they can't come within six feet of you. That was a rabbinical law. And they would brag that they throw stones to drive lepers away. Jewish pastors at the time of Christ. It's the extent of what we're about to see Naaman do that shows us he had full-blown Hansen's disease. Number two, that's the problem. 
Here's the remedy. We're again about to see Elisha give a gift to someone in a crisis. He's on a raid. Now listen, if you think of ancient warfare, as you get all your people in your army lining up and matching up against all of the people in the other army, and then they go to battle. That's Hollywood. That's not always what happened. In fact, that's not even the majority of what wartime looked like. They usually took place in skirmishes. So one nation would get 100 soldiers. They would make a raid to an outlying border village. They would overrun the village, take the plunder, and capture the choice people for slaves and go back to their territory. And that would create a reprisal from this country, and they would do the same thing. And if they go back and forth, enough, it elevates into a full-blown war. But this is a skirmish, and Naaman takes a village by raid, and he captures a little girl. She's a girl from Israel, and he brings her back to his family, and she becomes his wife's slave. And the little girl, verse 3, said to his wife, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, we've already seen the problem. Remember, we're looking at the remedy. Everybody in Israel had heard about Elisha. He had done miracle over, after miracle after miracle. And because there's a ceasefire between Syria and Israel, just look at chapter 6, by the way, and you'll find the ceasefires over. They don't last long. They're back in war in chapter 6. But in chapter 5, they're in a ceasefire. Naaman goes to his king, King Hadad, Ben-Hadad, and says, Can I take a leave of absence from my job as a number two guy in Syria, the warlord, the commander, the general of the armies? Can I take a leave of absence because there's a girl in my family a little Israelite girl that says there's a prophet that can cure me. Can you let me go get that cure? And the king agrees. Look at verse 5. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And that means absolutely no economic sense to any of us. So let me help you understand it. 10 talents of silver, that's almost 13,000 ounces of silver today as of last Wednesday would be valued in our monetary market as $275,667. And then he took 6,000 shekels of gold. That's a little over 2,400 ounces. Today in our, in our market, gold, that much gold, 4,788,000 and some odd change. And let's just value one high-end set of clothes at $1,000. I think we're valuing that low in today's market. But he took 10 of them, so that's 10,000. If you add all of them together, here's what Naaman packs into chariots and takes to give to the person that could heal him. A little over $5 million. Wow. You see, except for God's people, listen, this is critically important, except for God's people, every single ancient religion believed that the bigger the gift you brought to the God, the bigger the miracle he returned. There's no grace in the ancient religions, only in what Yahweh created. 
So he takes over $5 million worth of product to barter for his miracle. He can't just take them and start traipsing across the countryside of Israel. He goes to King Joram of Israel with the letter from Ben-Hadad of Syria so that it doesn't look like an act of aggression, but the king of Israel has no faith. He's interpreting this as a humiliation of him. I can't cure a leper. No leper's ever been cured. No one's ever heard of a leper being cured. You're trying to embarrass me and start war again. And while he's angry, King Joram, Elisha sent him a message, verse 8. Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now you remember, First and Second Kings was written to encourage the weakening faith of the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Naaman takes all of his entourage, all of the chariots and servants, and he goes to Elisha's house and knocks. But the prophet won't even come to the door. He sent his servant Gehazi with a message. And the message was this. Go to the Jordan River. It's a muddy little river. 25 miles away from where Elisha was. Dip seven times. And when you come back up out of the water the seventh time, you will be healed. Now watch Naaman's reaction. And we're going to start seeing the gospel. Naaman was angry. He was offended. He's the number two guy in Syria. He's loved by everybody. He's highly favored, even by the king. He brought $5 million. He expects the prophet to personally see him. And look what he says. Wave his hands. That's magic phraseology to perform magic. After all, he's willing to pay for it, and he deserves it. How do you know he deserves it? Look at his reaction in verse 12. Are not Arbana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away and a rage. This, my friends, is pride. But his servants courageously appealed to him. And they said to him, Father, do what the prophet said. And finally, he relents and does. And in verse 14, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, what's happening, though? When you and I go through suffering, when you and I enter a trial, it's a pressure that is meant to squeeze our spiritual hearts. And it works like this. If I had a piece of cardboard up here and I had a big tube of Colgate toothpaste, Crest, whatever, and you can't see inside that tube, it's opaque. But I took that in front of you, that tube of toothpaste, and in my grip, I begin to squeeze. I begin to apply pressure. What's in that tube comes pouring out the tip onto that cardboard. And now you can see what was in that tube all along, but you could not see it when it was in there. Every trial, every disappointment, every pain, 
Every suffering is in the hands of God to squeeze your heart. And you're going to start seeing what was in there all along. Many, many years ago, I went to the hospital to visit a lady who had had back surgery. She was in unbelievable pain. You know how you know when somebody's in pain? I can hear it now when I call on the phone. Their voice gets thin and high-pitched. You know that if you've been in pain or if you've been around people in great pain. I went in there to visit her. Her voice was thin. It was high-pitched. I knew she was in a lot of pain. Every single person that came into her hospital room, every nurse, every attendant, every doctor, received her absolute sweetness and kindness. And I thought to myself, God's squeezing her heart, and what's coming out of it is beauty. What's coming out of it is grace and kindness. And then I began to look at myself. If my heart was being squeezed in this hospital room, would I be kind or would I be impatient? You see, what's in your heart, you cannot see. The heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. But God sees it. God understands it. And he does surgery. And for Naaman, it was leprosy. And he began to squeeze his heart. And then it got worse. The pressure got harder when Elisha would not even come see him. Another squeeze. I deserve your respect. I brought you a gift. I'm bartering for this. I'm not just wanting it for free. And all the while, God's squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. You know what started coming out? Anger. You know, anger is only the steam coming off of the boiling pot. It's only the smoke coming off of a pile of burning leaves. It's never the problem. Don't get caught up in anger. Get caught up in deeper things. What's burning down in your heart that's throwing up the smoke of your anger? Because that's what God's dealing with. Well, I'm a very important person. I deserve, and you're not giving it to me, and my anger is growing because you're an obstruction to my will. It didn't stay at anger, and anger never stays at anger. If you don't repent of it, it moves to rage. And that's exactly what happened in Naaman. He started with anger. God squeezing his heart. He kept up the pressure. Go to the River Jordan. Dip seven times. I'm not even going to see you. Do what I say, and you'll be healed. And it moved him into a rage to where he turned and started going back to Syria. Do you remember last week with that widow who had nothing for her and her two boys but one jug of partially filled oil. And Elisha said to her, go find every empty vessel in town and start pouring into them. But you know what, though? It will only pour into empty vessels. And Naaman is no empty vessel. He is full of self-confidence, full of self-sufficiency, full of self-love, full of self-importance. And he's got to be emptied of it all or he will never get his miracle. And that's point number three. Let's look at the gospel. Miracles always, always show us an aspect of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news of the person and work of Jesus. But to find it, to find the gospel here, I've got to show you two truths, and then I'm going to offer you two takeaways, and then we'll be done. The first truth that we're finding here is this. Leprosy points to the deeper problem of sin. 
Leprosy points to the deeper problem of sin. Let me say this and then I'll unpack it. There is no better metaphor in all of the Bible to describe the death-bringing effects of leprosy than um, the death-bringing effects of sin than leprosy. Leprosy is the perfect metaphor, metaphor for sin. Let me tell you why. Sin is a spiritual infection. And it numbs the conscience. Don't you know somebody that is hard in their heart? And the way that they're living is destroying them. And no matter how often you try to appeal to them, they don't see the problem. They seem impervious to your words. It's because sin always numbs the conscience. If you will not repent, it hardens your heart, and a hardened heart is a numb conscience. It's a seared conscience. Sin corrupts the soul. It spreads. You do not compartmentalize sin. You cannot ever say to anybody, yeah, I've got a problem in this one area of my life with sin. No, you don't. You have a problem in your heart. And in your heart, it's pumping out all kinds of evidence of that sin. You might say to me, no, no, I just, I just like to gamble. No, that's not true. Your heart doesn't trust God. And it's filled with disordered desires called idols. And gambling's just one of them. But that lack, lack of trust of God, that's what's fueling your anger. That's what's fueling your control issues. That's what control, uh, it's fueling your management issues. you got to manage everybody and everything. All of that's coming from your heart. It's your heart that's corrupt. And it's the leprosy of sin that's corrupted it. Naaman's pride was the stench that Elisha could smell coming before he even came to the door. Elisha's heart was infected, and it's true of every single person. Instead of loving and living for our creator, we love and live for ourselves, and we have all kinds of disordered desires. Well, I want to be beautiful. That's not a bad desire until it becomes disordered. I need to spend countless hours in the gym. And unless I feel like I'm meeting my standard, I have no confidence. Now you know it's a disordered desire. And we could go on and on, but these distorted loves have moved every one of us to cosmic treason, to divine rebellion. It's actually been said rightly, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Now, every one of you are smart. So sit on that for a moment. Think about that. Let that go around in your mind. You did not become a sinner when you committed your first sin. The Bible traces your sin nature all the way back to in vitro. When you were inside of your mother's womb, you were already a sinner. You didn't even commit an act of sin yet. No, you commit sin just like me because we're sinners. We have rebelled against God. And like the spring at Jericho, our hearts are toxic. And like the widow last week, our hearts our toxic hearts have accrued for us an incalculable debt, and we have no means to pay our unbreakable obligation. Do you see Naaman's leprosy was a systemic disease without cure from anything in this world 
And that's exactly what sin is. There is no cure in this world for sin. But that disease was the grace of God that directed his feet to the only one who could ever heal him, which was Elisha. And Naaman said, go wash in the Jordan seven times. There's nothing magical in the Jordan River. It's a muddy little river. Washing was to connect to a deeper defilement. There's a sin below the sin. There's a defiled heart that is really underneath the physical condition of leprosy in Naaman. And that's the first truth, but the second truth is encouraging. That's the bad news, what I just gave you. But the good news doesn't look so good if you leave out the bad news. It's the bad news that's so bad that makes the good news so good. The good news is this. The person of Elisha points to a new Elisha in the New Testament, and his name is Jesus. Listen, friends, if you get nothing out of this message than this, it's enough When you read the miracles of Elisha, you're seeing them as just representative of much greater miracles that Jesus is going to do. Elisha points to to Jesus, who is the new Elisha. And while Elisha healed Naaman of the leprosy of his heart, Jesus is going to heal anybody that comes to him of the leprosy of sin. Naaman, let me say that better. Naaman healed, or Elisha healed Naaman's leprosy of the body. Jesus heals the leprosy of the heart. You see, the bad news of the gospel is what makes the good news so great. Now, here's the bad news. Every one of us has the leprosy of the heart. We have a sinful heart. There is no cure on earth for it. But there is someone from heaven, and it is a person, not a power, He has a message, not magic, and he will give you mercy, and it is Jesus. And John the Baptist declared of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He heals spiritual leprosy. And when you go to the new Elisha in faith, you will be made clean. Now let me take, let me give you two takeaways, and then we'll be done. So far, I've told you the problem. Naaman has an incurable death warrant called leprosy. Nobody's ever been healed of it before this incident in the Bible. But Elisha does heal him. And we see the remedy. And the remedy is always, Naaman, you've got to trust. Now watch, sinner, you have to trust. You have to trust Jesus or you will not get your miracle. You have to believe, you have to have faith, or you will not be healed. So it moves us to two takeaways. One, what is the but in your life? What is the but in your life? Look at verse 1. He was a man of valor, but he was a leprosy. Do you know it's the but that eventually led him to salvation? He was successful. He was wealthy. He was capable. He was brave. He was courageous. He was respected. He was loved. He was honored. But, but he was a leper. There is a but he had in every one of our life stories, whether you see it or not. 
No matter how skilled you are, no matter how gifted and loved you are, there will always be a weakness in you have, in your life that you have. There will be something in your life that you cannot control. The but is always something that you cannot control, you cannot manage, you cannot dictate. It is more powerful than you. It might be a sin that you cannot stop. It might be a personality flaw that you cannot fix. It might be a recurring job loss that you don't know why it's happening. Whatever it is, there is a but in your life. It is a part of your life out of your control. And it is there by God's sovereign purposes. For Naaman, it was leprosy. And it would crush his self-sufficiency, crush his self-love, crush his self-confidence until it led him to the grace of God. Is there a but in your life? There is, but have you identified it? Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a career stall. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's recurring depression. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a wayward child, a joyless marriage, a sin that you cannot overcome. Whatever it is, it is beyond your control. It is touching every area of your life. You cannot escape its conviction, and it is bending you under its weight. Will you trust Will you trust Jesus that he's allowed that butt in your life to direct you to him? Look at verse 15. You're not going to find a clearer testimony of salvation anywhere in the Bible than here. Then Naaman returned to the man of God after he dipped in the Jordan and was clean, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all earth, in all the earth, but in Israel. Friends, do you see it now? The whole purpose for leprosy was to bring Naaman to salvation. That was the purpose. And it's the same purpose in your life with whatever that but is. Even if you're a Christian, you still have a but in your life because you have not yet given up and surrendered fully to him. And he will not relent and he will not take it away until you find your way to the foot of the cross rather than foot of the throne rather than seating on the throne. But there's one more takeaway and I'll be done. How are you, friends, Christian brother and sister, how are you helping to lead people to Jesus and salvation? Can I take you back to the beginning of the story to that little Israelite girl? She's not a toddler. She's old enough to know that there's a prophet in Israel, and she's been kidnapped by Naaman who is the warlord of, a, of a, an enemy nation. She's been taken from her parents, taken from her brothers and sisters, taken from her cousins, taken from her land, taken from everything that she knows, and she's been made a slave to Naaman's wife. Somehow she forgave him. 
because she had mercy for him. If only my Lord would know that there is a prophet in Israel that could cure him. If only he would go. She desired, she longed for his salvation. She longed for his cure. And she's the one that directed him to start the journey to find Jesus. Now, would you do that to someone who's abused you? who's fired you indiscriminately, who's rejected you and humiliated you, who's brought difficulty into your life, would you lead that person? Would you love that person? Would you be forgiving enough and merciful enough to direct that person to the only one that could save them, Jesus? Wow. I'm not even done. Go a little bit forward to outside the door of Elisha's house where Naaman is in a rage. And he starts to turn the chariots around and go back to Syria. And his servants take their lives in their hands and come to the man who has the power at a snap of his fingers to kill him and expose his pride. That's what they did. They exposed his pride. If the prophet came out and made a big to-do, Father, you would do what he said, right? Then why won't you do what he said when he doesn't make the big to-do? You're prideful, Naaman, and you're going to miss your miracle. And Naaman listened, and he went to the Jordan and dipped himself, was healed of his leprosy, and then was healed by faith of the greater leprosy of his heart. He got saved. Why? Because a little girl in Israel kidnapped, got him moving, and servants loved him enough to keep him moving. Would you do that? You're going to be surrounded by a lot of family and friends this holiday season. And you're going to have some of them that you really don't like very much, and some of them have wounded you and hurt you. Can you forgive? And can you love and tell them about the gospel of Jesus? It's the only way they can be saved. And you might be that little Israelite girl that gets their feet moving. You may not be there when they get to the end. Or you might be the servant to keep them moving. And you will be there to the end. But you're needed in their journey. Amen. Father, thank you. For what we have learned in this story, this is a miracle. And it is showing us, Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would take it deeply into our hearts. And that we would act on this. If there's anybody here that is not a Christian. Tomorrow is not promised to them, Father. And you know better than anybody that if they die without coming to your son they will awaken in a place called Hades, a place of torment and suffering. But it's just a warm-up act to hell where you will never step foot. It'd be utter darkness and wailing and gnashing of teeth. But they do not have to end there. They can come to the new Elisha and knock on his door 
and trust in what Jesus says. And I pray that you would move them in that direction. Let us be part, those who are Christians, let us be part of the journey of faith of people who need to find their way to Jesus. Let us be faithful and share what we know and direct them to Jesus who loves. The Jesus who came out of heaven to be born as a baby in a stone feeding trough in a limestone cave of Bethlehem who grew up perfectly obedient to you and willingly died on that cross because it's the only way anybody could be saved. Let us point people to the real reason for the season and help them find Christmas even in unexpected places. It's in the exalted name of Jesus we pray. Amen.